I tell you, you know, the, the thing that encourages me is that the, the, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means that he's the only way, he's the only truth, only truth, and he's the only life. The word of God also is the word of God. And <laughs> the word of God, we have the written word of God, and we also have the, the word of God who became flesh. Jesus Christ is the word of God. His word is the word of God. It's all him. It's all about him. It's all for him. And in, this, in these days of deception, and folks, I don't know if you know this, but it's going to get worse. The Bible tells us that. So don't be surprised and actually rest knowing that God has it covered. He's got everything covered. He knows exactly what's happening, and it's right on time. Nothing surprises him. It surprises us, but you don't need to be surprised. You don't need to be concerned or worried. He says, don't worry, don't fear. And yet we do, and I have, to be honest with you. But then I have to remember that, God, you are still on the throne, and no one is big enough to knock you off your hill. The king of the hill. Remember playing king of the hill, guys? You know, you stand up on top of that snow pile, and you play king of the hill. Well, he's the king capital K of the hill, and there's no one who is able to knock him off his hill. Amen? Amen. Love that. Love that. But um, his word is so important for us today. It's the only truth that you are going to have. The only thing that you can open up and understand that I'm not going to be lied to. I'm not going to be dismayed. I'm not going to be deceived. But as I read the word of God, it's going to change me on the inside. And doesn't the Bible tell us to do that? to wash ourselves in the water of the word and to be conformed, not to the, this world, but be the things that are written in here. Allow it to change your heart. That's God's intention. It's his word. He wants to change us. He wants to minister to us today. And so uh, let's open up to um, uh, the 12th uh, chapter of Matthew. And I titled this morning's message, uh, The Letter Kills. <laughs> the Letter Kills. And I'm speaking of the letter of the law. And it's so important for us to walk in grace and in mercy. Jesus is grace. Unmerited favor, something I could never deserve. To walk in that grace and, and, and to walk in mercy as well. And, and God is all merciful. He withholds from us the things that I do deserve. And I don't deserve any good thing, but he withholds from me those things that I deserve because the wages of sin is death. And so when I sin, I deserve something in return and it's not good. And when he doesn't give, give it to me, that's mercy. And then he gives to me things that I could never, ever deserve or even earn, and that's called grace. Some have uh, touted the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And I love that. God's riches at Christ's expense. He did all the dying so that we could be living, that we could be living and it's always good to walk in grace and mercy. Rather than walking in legalism and walking with a, a microscope and, and, a, and, a, and a magnifying glass, looking at everyone, looking at everything under the microscope, you know, are you adding up? You know, are you doing the right thing? And have you been around people like that? Where, you know, maybe in this church, maybe in another church, but they're always looking at you with, like they're testing new eyes. They're looking at you, what have you done? I know you did something. 
<laughs> have you experienced that? I think most of us have. And Jesus is going to encounter the, the scribes and the Pharisees in this passage today. They were the legalists. They were the ones who strained at a gnat and yet swallowed a camel. They were the ones to look at the small, minute things and miss the bigger picture altogether. They were the ones that would just look at you with those squinty eyes and, and, and make you feel like you just weren't good enough. You weren't towing the line. You weren't adding up. You weren't doing what they're doing. And if you're not doing what they're doing, then there's obviously something wrong with you. You might, you might not even go to heaven because you're not doing what they're doing. So if you want to go to heaven, you got to get on their program, right? <laughs> and Jesus is saying, no, you don't need to get on their program. Do what they say, but don't do what they do, Jesus would tell his disciples. They say all the right things, but they don't do all the right things. They say all the right things, but they miss out on the bigger picture. And see, legalism is a lot like that. You know, you can say all the right things, but your life is not submitted to it. Rather, you've got your own code of ethics that you're following. And if people don't add up to those code of ethics and don't succumb to your authority and, and what, how you view things, then, you know, there's something wrong with you. And so many churches in America have broken apart because of legalism. Being, and, and that's why the letter, it kills. The law is a very good thing. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all these things, we'll look at this later, they are tutors to bring us to Christ. They're, they're, they're just the beginnings to, to it's almost like uh, tonight you're going to probably watch the Super Bowl at some, but come at, on, on tonight at 6 p.m. And, uh, and then you can, you can see the Super Bowl at halftime, okay? You can come, at, but come tonight. But at, tonight you're going to see a quarterback handing off a ball to a running back. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are a lot like that. The quarterback is like the Old Testament, preparing you, revealing things to you. And then the handoff is the New Testament. Now run. <laughs> now run, right? And that's kind of what it's like. The letter, it kills, but Jesus brings grace and truth. He is life. He is life. Let's read uh, just the first, I, I think I had on the, on, the, uh, on the program today, verses 1 through 21, but I think we're just going to do the first 14 verses. Notice what it says. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat and when the Pharisees saw it, notice these guys, just with their microscopes and their, their magnifying glasses. And when the Pharisees saw them do this, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But notice what he said to them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, What man is there among you? 
who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath day, will not lay hold on it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And see, whenever grace comes into contact with legalism and the law, there is always going to be fireworks. Always going to be fireworks. Have you ever felt like you were being watched? (laughs) That someone was just waiting for an excuse for uh, some wrongdoing that you've done? And even though you're walking in love and grace, you feel that no matter what you do, a person or a people group are going to find fault with you? This is what Jesus' ministry was like when he was in Jerusalem and anywhere he found himself in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees, this is what he endured. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the legalists of their day. And Jesus called them. He wasn't very kind to them. They, of all people, should have known who he was when he came on the scene, but they rejected him. And Jesus wasn't very kind to them. He was truthful He said to them, you're a bunch of serpents. You're a brood of vipers, he would tell them. In Matthew 23, he would say, you're blind guides. You strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You look at the very small things, and and yet you miss the big things. You major in the minors and minor in the majors. And this was their problem. No one could stack up to their good works, to their holy pious aspirations. They were critical, and no doubt these men were miserable and critical. They made everyone around them miserable and critical, or at least miserable anyway. In Matthew 23, verse 15, it says this, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell than yourselves. Those are pretty strong words, don't you think? The Lord hates legalism. There is an old phrase that says, misery loves company, and these guys were miserable. There was something in them that they, they couldn't even attain to their own righteousness. They'd made up rules and regulations. But have you been around a legalistic, critical Christian? One who browbeats you, causing you to doubt whether you're even saved because you don't stack up to their righteousness, who don't do as many good things as they do. You're not fellowshipping as much as they do. You don't get the mission magazines that they do, and they have a nicer Bible than you, and also they make you feel guilty and inept. And they make you start, so much so that you start taking pills just to be around them. In most churches, there are people like this. And it's an unfortunate thing because God wants to break that of them. They express very little love, show no grace. Everything's about do's and don'ts. And if you were to liken these kinds of folks to a food, you might think of a raisin. If you were to liken a person like this, you might think of a porcupine. Every time you're around them, you smell strong scents of lemon because it's, that's what the, it appears that they're sucking on. You know, always looking around. 
And the devil loves to influence, notice I didn't say possess, but influence a frustrated, unhappy, legalistic Christian and cause them to wreak havoc in a church. And it's happened over the years. It's happened here. Every church it happens because we're all the same. You see a person like that coming toward you and you act like you don't see them. You quickly run into the bathroom so you can avoid them. Or if time is of the essence, you might even sneak into the hallway closet where the utility room is next to the smelly, moldy mop just to avoid being around them. But they prided themselves, the Jews, on not only the Ten Commandments, but they they prided themselves in this outward performance of those things rather than the inward reality. 613 laws they extrapolated from the Old Testament. God gave us ten, but they made a lot more, and they even expanded on those things. And everything was just a bondage to them and to everyone around them. It, It gets really ridiculous. If you go down that road long enough, everything is a rule and a regulation, and pretty soon you're just like, I can't breathe. This thing is so tight. On, you know, this, this walk, this relationship is so constraining. I can't even breathe. They were technicians in the letter of the law, but totally missed the spirit of the law. The letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. What does it tell us in Matthew? Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Notice what he says. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to the works. For they say and do not. A lot of talk, but not a lot of walk. A lot of condemnation, but a lot of adding rules. And you better do this, you better do that. And because of their propensity to focus on these externals, they would also neglect God and the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Jesus would say to them, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, Jesus would say. For which is greater, the gold of the temple or The temple that sanctifies the gold. And Jesus was not only Lord over the temple, but also the Lord over the Sabbath as well. The Sabbath, we know, was revered by the Jews because it was one of the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees thought they could achieve their righteousness, the righteousness of God by following those things and their performance of the law. But unfortunately, the Bible has concluded that we are saved by grace through faith. What does it tell us in Ephesians? For by grace, by grace, not through legalism, not through, uh, you know, well, I followed all, you know, not, you know, five of the Ten Commandments. The other five, not so well, but I did five. Aren't, aren't, can I get at least get a certificate of participation? God's no, if, you, if you've committed one, if you've done one of those wrong, you've, that's enough to send anyone to hell. Yes, one. <laughs> one sin, because God is a holy God. Aren't you glad that Jesus came to, a, to fulfill all of that for you so that you just put your faith in him and he's got you covered? It really is that simple. And we have his spirit as a down payment, as the earnest of our salvation, 
conforming us into his image, giving us a distaste for those things that we used to do. And now we have a desire that is like, Lord, I, I, for the first time, I, I really don't want to do that. But I find that in my body, there's just, just you know, this, this pull to do this. Yeah, welcome to spiritual warfare. Welcome to real Christianity. Is it easy? Is real Christianity easy? No, it is not. If somebody comes and says, just give your heart to Christ and everything's going to be fine, man. It's pie in the sky and you'll get everything you want and you'll be rich and prosperous and all. They're lying to you. Yes, you're the richest person in the world because you have the greatest thing, salvation. And you've got an eternity with that. But don't listen to their lies. The Christian life is not an easy one. Is it a blessed one? Yes. Is it without trials and tribulations? No. There are trials and tribulations everywhere we go because now, for the first time, we know that the battle is on. Before I came to Christ, I was already a, uh, I was already bought and sold. I didn't even know what was happening. But now that I know Christ and I know real life and his spirit dwells in me, now I recognize the battle. And there is a battle around us. But notice, by grace are you saved, and that through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. If it's a gift, then it's not... um, If it's a gift, then it's of grace. If it's something that I earn, then it's something that I have to do. My works. But my works don't do it. It's my faith and my trust in him. By grace, he has saved me. And he continues to hold me. And James even tells us in James 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. Because that's God's holy standard. And I can't keep that. I can't even keep that today before I came in. One stray thought, you know, and I'm so glad that Jesus paid the price, the penalty, and all we have to do is confess these things. But thinking themselves justified by not committing physical murder or physical adultery, Jesus had to confront them. Remember, they were all about the externals, wearing the right things, saying the right things, going through the motions. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Even if you're angry, it is like murder. And what about adultery? You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery, Matthew 5, 27. But I say to you, notice how Jesus inserts himself because he was the one who made the law. And now he's saying, but now I say to you, what's going on in here? You may not physically have an adulterous affair with somebody else in the physical But in your mind, you can do it every single day, and you can do it often, right? And he says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman, and ladies, whoever looks at a man with lust in their heart has already committed adultery with her or him in their heart. And so hung up on their performance and the letter of the law, the Pharisees now, they bring the disciples before their bar, their bar of justice. And boy, was it a load. It was a load. 
Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It sounds very inviting, doesn't it? It kind of reminds me of a hammock, you know, hanging up in the Adirondacks. You know, there's this place we go up in, in the Adirondacks, and it's on a Lake Sacandaga. And when we're up there, I put up this hammock overlooking the, the lake, and, it, and, and it's like that. I think of that verse. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'm sitting there with my iced tea and my Bible in my lap, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary and heavy laden? Now they bring the disciples before their bar of justice. They said in verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields, and oh my gosh, it was on the Sabbath. Anything but the Sabbath. Any day but the Sabbath. But I almost wonder if Jesus did it on the Sabbath just to... <laughs> I better, okay. Because if I were Jesus, I would have reserved all my miracles on only on the Sabbath, only on, only on you, know, you know, six o'clock or whatever, Friday night until Saturday at the same time. I would only reserve anything. Until then, I'm out of office. You know, I just put up my out of office, my autoresponder on my email and phone, and I would just not do anything and just wait around, you know, for six or seven o'clock on Friday night. Okay, and I'm going to start doing stuff just to spite those guys. Just to make them, just to see their blood pressure go up, like a, like a thermometer, you know, you just see the red coming up like this. But their biggest complaint with the disciples was that they did this on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, yes, the Ten Commandments, it tells us. Remember the Sabbath, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath, God says, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your... Notice even the animals. Isn't God an awesome God? He, he cares about you. You're the, you're the main thing, but he says, you know, also that big ox and that, that donkey and that camel or whatever it is, you know, uh, give them a break too and all of your servants. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven... Six days... Now, was that six eons of time, you know, billions and billions? No, six 24-hour periods because he made the sun and the sun has been doing its thing and we've been spinning the same way since the creation. Six 24-hour periods God created and the last thing he created was man. And then he rested on the seventh day, didn't he? In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the day, the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. He cares about you. You can't work seven days a week. You keep doing that, you're going to die. You're going to get frustrated and angry. You're going to be burnt out. People over in, in, the, in, the, in the far east are doing that. They're working in sweatshops feverishly. Kids working several hours, way 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. And then they get older and they're just, their bodies are completely spent. Their mind is gone. Many of them commit suicide. And there's no break in sight. They're just constantly under the whip. And God says, take a day off. You need it. I'm the creator. I created you. I know what you need. Will you just listen? Hey, in America, we usually get two days off, Saturday and Sunday. Praise the Lord for that. If you work Monday through Friday, you're a blessed person because you got two days. But do that to rest. 
And notice in verse 1 that his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat as they were walking. And this, it's called the practice of gleaning. And it was justified in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy tells us that when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck, you may pluck the heads of the grain with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Deuteronomy 24, 19 tells us, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, notice how God cares for people, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. But when you beat the olive trees, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, again, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, same thing. Remember Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, she gleaned in Boaz's field, remember that? She was poor, and she was happy just to take the outskirts. They were to save the perimeter of their fields and leave them alone and just reap the inner parts and let the other folks, the poor and the community, come by and eat, and they would be satisfied. It was social security back in the first century. The Lord took care of his people. There are many other things in which he did to keep to take care of them. But notice in verse 2, so when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be working. Because here are the disciples taking the grain and they're, they're taking it off and they're rubbing it like this and the, and the chaff is going on the floor and then they're taking the grain and they're eating it. Oh, you've worked too much. Going to have to talk to the boss about that. And the disciples were just having an afternoon snack. And these legalists, they couldn't help themselves in finding fault, just waiting for the moment to use that new magnifying glass that they got on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Holding it up and looking at you, squinting their eyes. The disciples, they were walking in grace. And these, these Pharisees, they couldn't stand it. The disciples were no longer under their control. And what does it tell us in John's Gospel? It says, and all of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law, the letter was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And when a Christian comprehends grace, it will change your life forever. When you really comprehend grace, because it's been given to us, and then for you to extend that to all of your brothers and sisters, even to those that don't even know Christ, to be gracious and merciful and loving and compassionate. That's the name of the game, folks. Not walking around with a, with a, with a magnifying glass, squinting at everything. Boy, you're just doing everything wrong, aren't you? Can't believe you. And then you quote a scripture at them. You know, and it's like, Really? That's what the Pharisees were doing to these disciples. And when we realize that we've been saved by grace through faith, it levels the playing field and we're just happy to be accepted. Are you happy to be accepted today? I'm just happy to be in the kingdom. Even if, even if I get there by the skin of my chinny chin chin. Even if I've done nothing and, and, I, and all, anything that I've done since I've been saved, even all, if all of it was just wood, hay, and stubble and burned up in the judgment, and the fact that I can get there with my tail singed a little bit and get there into heaven, happy am I. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Are you thankful to be a child of God? It is good. 
And notice, he, they said, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. And the letter of the law kills. The letter, in Romans it tells us, chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew, and, and Paul has given us some doctrine here. He is, not, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. If I, if I live my life according to the law, I'm going to be pretty miserable, and I'm going to be condemned. The law was never meant to tell you how good you are. It was meant to show you how rotten you are. How, what a bad boy and a bad little girl you've been. And it's a tutor, it's a schoolmaster, right? In 2 Corinthians five, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, it says that our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers, Paul says, of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. Did you hear him say it? The letter, the letter of the law, that kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit be, not be more glorious? And he's speaking of the difference between the Old and the New Testament. There's supposed to be a handoff. Yes, you've made a lot of... <laughs> You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Anybody else a sinner? Raise your hand. Let's see. I'm a sinner. Everybody should raise their hand, right? But if you didn't, that's okay. Everybody's looking at you with a magnifying glass. No. <laughs> but the law is supposed to be a handoff. Yes, I am all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, and, and I need to be handed over to Christ, who can really uh, pay the price, the penalty, once and for all. Not in the blood of bulls and goats that have to happen all the time, but once, once, once he was sacrificed on the cross, and that was all that was needed because it was the perfect blood of Almighty God, the spotless Lamb of God, did the job for you and me. And we just have to believe by faith. Glory in that. Isn't that awesome? Paul in Romans says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it, is it sinful? Is the law sinful? He says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Do you hear him? I didn't know. It's like you can't punish somebody when the law hasn't been created. Even though you are still guilty, unless there's a law, judgment can't be given, right? <laughs> he says, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, he says, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire... For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. It's good. I need the law. Remember the bad news and the good news? Never forget the bad news, folks, as we share the gospel with people. You have to tell them the bad news. All have sinned and come short of the glory. That's the law. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is the good news, the gospel. 
Don't ever not tell them about the bad news first. That apart from Christ, they're not going to make it to heaven. And it's not your decision. This is what God has told us. And we know it to be true in our heart. Galatians 3.23 says that before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which should be revealed afterward. And we are a beneficiaries of that right now. We are enjoying that, uh, that faith. And it says, therefore, the law was our tutor. In the King James, it says schoolmaster. The law was a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, the quarterback handing off to the, the, the running back. It was a tutor. When it had done its job, okay, here you go, he's a mess, save him. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by what? Our good works? The bake sales that we've done, the car washes for the infirm? No. Justified by faith and faith in the Son of God. But after faith has come, he says, we are no longer under a tutor. So back in verse 3 in our text, it goes on, but he said to them, have you not read, as they're, as they're attacking the disciples, what are they doing us on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Do you remember that? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel 21. This is the event that Jesus was speaking of. And David, if you remember, back in the Old Testament, before he was even king, he had been running from Saul, his father-in-law. Saul was the first Israel's first king, and, and when God anointed David to take his place because of his lack of obedience and his disobedience, God had anointed David, and once Saul heard about it, Saul became insanely jealous over this young man. And not only was he anointed king, but he could play the guitar really well, and he hated that. Saul couldn't play anything. But David was a wonderful musician. David even soothed him with his celestial tones at times. And Saul hated him. So David is now on the run. For about seven years, he was running for his life while Saul was hunting him all over the place. So David finally, he says, David came to Nob. And Nob is just a little bit northeast of Jerusalem. It's actually on the road. If you've been to Jerusalem with us, there's a road that goes from Jerusalem all the way down through the mountains into Jericho, into the, um, the Jordan Valley. And we believe that Nob is somewhere over on the other side of the street. As you're going down, uh, going east, that, that over there in that place, we believe that's where Nob was. But he came there to Ahimelech the priest. And so Ahimelech was afraid when he met David because David was a hunted man. Abimelech, or excuse me, Ahimelech, knew that um, David was, there was something not quite right. And he was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? A man of your caliber should have men with you. Where are they? What's going on? What are you doing, David? Are you running from, the, from Saul? So David said to Ahimelech, the king has ordered me on some business. Of course, he's, he's lying here. And uh, about, um, do not let anyone know about anything of the business which I send you or which I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to stay in such and such a place, David says. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Do you have any uh, ham sandwiches? Do you have any chips? Do you have any uh, Snapple? 
Guys are really hungry. Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, and David said to the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, but even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread that was supposed to go on the table of showbread, and it was there as a symbol, if you will, of the bread of life. And who is the bread of life? Jesus, right? All those articles in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle, all of that was symbolic of Christ. And only the priests were supposed to eat that. So what is David, a member of the tribe of Judah, he's not supposed to eat that. But you see God's grace in it? His men are starving. They're really emaciated. He comes to him and says, hey man, you got anything? He goes, you know what? We just baked some new bread to replace. You can take the holy bread and you guys eat it. And it sustained them. And see, the letter of the law would say, no way. You guys are going to starve. Sorry, I know you're laying there and you're holding your throat and you look all pale. Sorry, can't do it. The bread, you know what Moses said? I'm not going to give you the bread. Are you, what are you, crazy? Haha, <laughs> but there are times, isn't it true, that where the law of God can be uh, changed for the moment, at the, uh, the need at the moment? God is more concerned about the men at that moment than he is about this law. He'd rather preserve life than have it end. And David's life and the life of his men was deemed more important than the law at this moment. And he goes on, Jesus, in verse 5, and he says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple, they profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What does that mean? When you think of all the hard work that those men, those Levites, did in the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple when it was built, these guys were very busy I mean, think of this. I don't think the, the, these Levites were these skinny guys who, you know, I think they were, they were pretty big guys because they had to take bulls and goats and, and lambs and sheep and all of these other things. They had to sacrifice them. It was a bloody mess. And then they had to lift that thing and put it on the altar. Do you think those guys were like toothpick arms? No, these guys were probably, you know, guys you wouldn't want to mess with. They were meat eaters. Hallelujah for meat. Not this genetically modified stuff and the bugs they want us to eat. No, the real thing. Angus beef, ah, from Texas. Yes, sirloins and Delmonico's and porterhouse. Seasoned nicely, seared. Yeah, I have a problem. (laughs) When you think of all that they worked that they did on the Sabbath, they were profaning the Sabbath. The Sabbath said, don't do any work. And yet these guys are working really, really hard. So Jesus is calling that into account here. And he says, yet I say unto you that in this place there is one. Notice in your Bible, the word one is capitalized. The translators put a capital O there on purpose to tell you, yes, the one it's speaking of. Who is it speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus. There is one in this place greater than the temple. <gasps> Don't say anything about the temple. God forbid, even don't say anything about the gold of the temple. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I'm more important than all of it. 
more important than all of it. Yet I say unto you that there is one in this place greater than the temple. Now we're going to see later on in this chapter, in a week or so, verses 41 and 42 specifically, that Jesus would say to the scribes and the Pharisees, indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. He would say again, indeed, greater than Solomon is here. These are our forefathers. Why are you saying that, Jesus? These guys are revered, and why are you equating yourself and saying you're better than them? Well, because I'm God, I'm, I'm, I'm the word that became flesh and dwelt among you. I am almighty God. I created David. I created Jonah. And the author of Hebrews puts forth how much Jesus was the fulfillment and so much better than the angels, worthy of more glory than Moses, and certainly even greater than the temple. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, I'm looking at the time, and let's do this. Um, Yes, Hebrews chapter 3. The author says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, notice the uppercase O, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house was more, has more honor than the house. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Just go to chapter 8. And the author sums this whole thing up and he says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, speaking of Christ, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest because he was from the line of Judah, right? Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses has divinely instructed when he was taken, when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. The difference between the letter of the law and the New Testament in Christ, the forgiveness of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I had made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts. They will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then down in verse 13 he says, And that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it doesn't mean that the Old Testament's no longer worthy to read. No, you read the whole thing, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all good. 
You need both. Don't think, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, but you need to read the Old Testament because if you don't, you're not going to understand a lot what's in the New Testament. Over 96 times just in the Gospel of Matthew, 96 references to Old Testament scriptures. It's the second most quoted of the Old Testament in the book, in the New Testament. The first book that is quoted most is Revelation. Revelation quotes more of the Old Testament 266 times. Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. And Matthew is second to it. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's greater than all of the types of the, New, of the Old Testament. But Jesus goes on, he says, If you had known what this means, he says to them, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty, or the guiltless, excuse me, because mercy, as, you, as I said before, is God withholding from us punishment or consequences that we deserve. In John's gospel, we see this clearly demonstrated when he healed a paralytic man who was paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda again, and he did it on the Sabbath. And after healing the man, Jesus found him later in the temple and said, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. You know what that is? Grace and mercy. For that man... For his malady that he had, it was because of his sin that he was in that malady. But don't assume because you're sick that you're, you know, you've sinned or something. But this man, it was definitely true for him. His sin brought this malady upon him. But Jesus in mercy said, sin no more. And he healed him, lest a worse thing come upon you. Mercy, mercy. Mercy was foreign to the Pharisees with their strict code of ethics. And this is also true of much religion in the world today. Many churches, many religions, many cults today, leaders of these religions use manipulation and fear to control their constituents, to get money from them, playing, manipulating them, playing mind games with them, making them feel that they're not quite good enough. If you just give a little more, God might smile today at you, but you've got to give a lot. If you give $1,000, big smiles. You only give 100 no. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus, again, showing that he is the Messiah. In the parallel account of this exact event in Mark's gospel, it says this, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Do you get that? The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Everything is backward with the Pharisees and with the legalists, with those who are critical. He says, no, the Sabbath was made for man. I love man, God says. I don't want him to work himself to the bone. He needs rest. I know what he's made of. I also know what he's not made of, and he needs rest. You need a mental break. You need time to worship. You need time to spend time alone. You need to spend time with your family. You need to, you need to sit in that hammock there by the lake while somebody else is manning the grill. <laughs> you need that. And we often think that the commandments of God are restricting our freedom, but this commandment is actually giving man a break. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder. But then God says, ah, remember the Sabbath. Work in six days and then take the day off. Does that sound restrictive to you? 
Only if you're greedy. Only if you've got to work seven days a week so that you can have, you can, you know, make more money. But are you willing to take a break? Are you working too much? God wants to give you a break. Are you willing to take it? Verse 9, so, now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and Luke chapter 6, the parallel passage to this in verse 6, it says that this was a different Sabbath. This was not the same Sabbath. And it says, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and Luke's gospel tells us that it was the man's right hand. Matthew doesn't concern himself, and it doesn't really matter, but the details are helpful. You can read in Luke 6 verse 6, it was his right hand. See all the Gospels? You put them all together and it gives you the whole picture. (laughs) And they asked him, saying, is it lawful? So the Pharisees see this man with a withered hand, and they ask. And they ask Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They knew what he was going to do. Because he was compassionate, and they should have been compassionate, but instead of being compassionate to the man who had a withered hand, they're looking at Jesus and going, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? legalists, critical spirit. Jesus hated that. He didn't hate them. He hated their actions. You know the difference? We have to be careful about that, right? We hate sin. I hate sin in my own self. I hate sin in other people too. When you see what it's doing to their lives, how it's robbing them, how it's destroying their lives, I hate to see it. And we ought to hate it too, but we got to love the person, no matter what the sin is. Whether it's adultery, a heterosexual adultery or fornication, whether it's homosexual fornication, can you love that person? We ought to. Somebody comes in here who is caught up in that lifestyle and that sin. Are we going to sit, you know, all the church sits over here and that one person is sitting over here going, where's the love? And God is going, yeah, where is the love? (laughs) Can you love that person? Guys, can you strike up a conversation and just be kind, knowing that they're here to hear the truth, and hopefully over time the Lord will change them and another friend of the kingdom of God is added? Can we do that? Or do we get out our microscope? Don't want to be around you. Jesus said, then he said to them, what man is there? He looked around at all of these scribes and these legalists. And he says, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Won't you get your friends to wrap a rope around the legs of that ox and pull up your Ford F-250 and drag that thing out? Are you willing to do that? (laughs) Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, above all the things that God created, he noticed he places the value of man higher than all of it. Isn't it madness that you can go to jail for mishandling your dog? And I'm not encouraging mishandling your pets. Don't get me wrong. But you can go to jail for that, but you can go to Planned Parenthood and murder your child, and somebody else will even pay for it. And Jesus is saying, (laughs) isn't a man of more value than a sheep? And Jesus places more value on us, on on his creation, the capstone of his creation, his workmanship, than he does on animals. He loves animals too. And we ought to treat them with respect. We don't want to hurt, you know, you you understand what I'm saying. You don't hurt animals on purpose. We don't have to be cruel. 
But it's no surprise because it is man that Jesus came to save, not the ox. He came to save man. And it's no surprise because Ephesians tell us we are his workmanship. Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship. The Greek word workmanship, uh, the Greek word is poema. A masterpiece. You're his workmanship. He looks at you regardless of your background and everything. He, he says, I love you. Nobody else really likes you because of the wart on your nose and the way you walk and the funny things you wear and the eye makeup and all that stuff, but I love you. You're in my, you're in my image. I love you. And God would challenge us to love as well, the same way, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yes, he is going to condemn the world in the future, but right now he came to seek and to save that was lost. He didn't come to save the ox and the camel and the, and, you know, and the, uh, the sheep. He came to save man. It's more important to him than anything. Of how much more value than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. Again, in the parallel account of this in the Gospel of Mark, it says that when he said this, he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. Yes, perfect anger. Be angry and sin not. Jesus had the ability, and so do you, to be angry but not sin. It's okay to be angry. Jesus looked around all these men, casting judgment on this man, isn't he worth more than a sheep? You guys would help and get the sheep out of the ditch, but what about this poor man? And he looked on them with anger because of the hardness of their heart. The hardness of their heart. Have you ever had a hard heart? Yes, I have. Then I have to pray, soften it, Lord, with oil. Soften my heart with oil. Take your spirit and just pour it upon me and soften this rotten, crusty, old piece of leather in my chest. Soften it, God. It's cracked, it's broken, it looks ugly. Then he said to the man, verse 13, and notice this, Jesus just could have said that and the man would be like, oh, go for it, Lord, go for it. Tell those legalists what it's about. And Jesus could have walked, and, and that could have been the end of it. But he goes a step even further. And he goes to the man, stretch out your right hand. And I can almost hear him saying, that you may know that the Son of Man has power to heal. Stretch out your right hand. And the man stretches his hand out, and he's like freaking out himself. And everyone around him is going, whoa, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, read it and weep, baby. <laughs> right? Now, Jesus' attitude was not like that. that would, that's what I would do, because I'm a sinner. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched out. It was restored as whole as the other. A similar thing happened much later in Jesus' ministry, too. And, um, you know, we don't really have time to go into that, but I would encourage you to look at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 7. A very similar thing happened again on the Sabbath. Actually, I can't resist this, because this is so beautiful. We have to do this. Um, it says that he was teaching uh, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman now, a different woman on the Sabbath, again, 
who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue... He starts to pull out his taser. He's ready to go to battle with Jesus. You're not supposed to do this. There's six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on one of them and not on the Sabbath. <laughs> Old crusty fool. Then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not, so ought not this woman... Being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound? Think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said this, these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Love it. Isn't she a daughter of Abraham? Isn't she worth doing this, even on the Sabbath? Don't do it on the Sabbath. God's like, forget the Sabbath. I'm here to heal her now, and I'm going to do it. Aren't you glad that God's always on time? He doesn't care what time or day. It could be in the middle of 3 o'clock in the morning when he visits you. He's not limited by time. You and I are stuck in time for now. Then the Pharisees plotted how they could, plotted against him how they might destroy him. He become so, they become so incensed by the grace and his power that instead of caving into it themselves and being his disciples, they, he was bad for business. He's bad for business. Everyone's going to flock to him, and what are we going to do about our retirement? They, thought, they sought together how they might destroy him. And see, this is the response of those who are critical and legalistic. It is never humility, brokenness, and reconciliation, only malice and hatred leading to death. And if you are critical of everyone around you and you have a critical spirit, take some time to examine your heart. Don't be a legalist like the Pharisees, but grow in grace. Not in compromise, but in grace. And pray that God would open your eyes and my eyes to remove all of that critical spirit from me and from us. Pray that God would open your eyes to the truth of his character that you might apprehend that grace and mercy. And what does it tell us in Romans? And, and, and we'll end with this today. Uh, actually, let's open there. Let's go there ourselves. Uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And we're just going to read down through verse 21 and we'll, we'll end there. See, this is what we want to be like. I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to walk around with a critical spirit. I don't like being around people who are critical, do you? I can find myself being critical. And you know what? I don't like being around me. And the Holy Spirit's going, man, I want to go somewhere else. I mean, he doesn't, but I wouldn't blame him if he left me for a season. <laughs> be gracious. Be loving, be merciful toward everyone, regardless of their political gleanings, leanings, regardless of whatever they're involved in, whatever sin that they just happen to be involved in, regardless of all that stuff, can you love and be gracious? Tell them the truth. Yes, do you know that truth is being gracious? Lovingly telling the truth is grace. 
For me to lie to them is not grace, but to lovingly tell them the truth. And the key is lovingly tell them when it's appropriate, when I'm led by the Spirit, to lovingly tell them the truth. There's nothing more gracious than that. Because truth, it's truth. Notice what it says in Romans 12, verse 9. Paul, he says, and you'll notice if you have a King James Version Bible, you'll see the heading, behave like a Christian. <laughs> I love that. I have to be reminded sometimes to behave like a Christian. Paul tells the Romans, he says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Yes. And abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. That sounds like a pretty good command. Abhor what is evil. Are you abhorring what is evil? Are you clinging to what is good? Or are you still clinging to the old grave clothes, the old things? I just, you know, I'm almost rid of this thing, but I'm just going to enjoy it a little bit. I just want a little sliver of it. And you hang on to it, and God's going, why don't you just get rid of it? You're 90% of the way there. Why don't you just swallow the hook and run with the bait? I won't even pull on the rod. Just run with it. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affection to one another. And see, there's our mandate from the Lord. Be kindly affection to one another. Not bringing out the microscope and the telescope. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. We can't forget that. Those who, are, who don't have as much around us, are we helping them out? If we hear about stuff, are we willing to help them out a little bit? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. And here it is. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't be content and and desiring to hang out with the upper crust. We're going to hang out with the holy rollers. You know, those who are, you know, something in the community. Nice home. I only hang out with those people, but people of, you know, um, don't want to do that. They want to hang out with those people. I want to hang out with the upper crust. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Now, the humble could be wealthy and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of wealthy people that I know that have great hearts with God, and they're humble. And they're not stingy, but they're not also not just going to give everything away. Just be, you know, they're careful. And there are people like that too. They're not all stingy. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, don't get wrathful. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We did this song with the kids at Boca many years ago, and I can't wait to do it again. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. And then we, we just repeat that, you know, and then there's a chorus to it, but it's really simple. We're going to do it again with those kids in the fall. I'm looking forward to it. Scripture songs, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so as these men are trying to trap Jesus and his disciples, legalists, let's learn not to be that, of that heart. Shall we? Shall we ask God to humble our hearts and, and mold us and make us malleable again and soften these hearts? Each one of us can go through it, can't we? Get a hard heart. Well, let's pray. Let's ask him. Let's stand together and let's ask him to do that. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, and we're, we're mindful of all that Jesus went through in his disciples and, Lord, how he was constantly under scrutiny. Father, and we know that people will look at us that way too, Father, but help us to not uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Lord, to be kind in spite of what others may do to us or what they may say about us, the looks that they may give us, Lord. May our hearts, may you remove every critical legalistic strain in us that we can love like Christ, that we can love one another. And your word says that the world will know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. And Lord, may we practice here in the house of God those very things. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.